Maybe. There it is. Welcome to our service today. Again, thank you so much for being with us on this day after Christmas. We're very excited that you all are here, and we're thankful um, that you've come to continue in worshiping Christ, the King. Well, hey, how do you guys feel about weddings? Anybody like them? Yes? No? They, they tend to be kind of a polarizing thing. People either love them or hate them. Um, and I guess that kind of depends on whether you're the person who is enjoying the free food and drink or whether you're the person who is paying for very much not free food and drink. Um, Scott and Mr. Puckett know what I'm talking about. Um, but I've never paid for a wedding, um, and so I love them. Uh, I think they're great. <laughs> Um, and I think that if we're honest, there's something in all of us that, that really does love weddings. Um, the joy of two people coming together through, from different backgrounds, through various trials and struggles, coming together to commit themselves, um, to pledge themselves to one another, no matter what, that they're going to stick together. I think that's a beautiful thing. I think it's something we were made for and that, that is inherent in our, in our design. Um, many movies and many books and many stories culminate in a wedding. I don't know if you've noticed that. In fact, the whole story of the Bible culminates in a wedding, in the book of Revelation with Christ and his church. And the book of Joshua culminates in a wedding of sorts, um, or at least something very like a wedding, something called a covenant renewal ceremony. That's what we're going to look at today. So I'm not sure if you caught that, but yes, we are at the end of the book of Joshua today. Man, that's, that's good news. I don't know if you're excited, but I'm excited. Um, we've, had, we've had a great time here in this book. Um, but here at, at the end of this book, the end of God's people coming into this land that God prepared for them, um, they have, have taken it over, they've got peace in the land, um, and they begin to, to think about what it looks like to settle down there. And at the end of this book, we come to this solemn and serious ceremony. Um, the two parties that are coming to this altar, if you will, are God and his people, Israel. And Joshua um, ends up serving as uh, kind of the pastor, a, a, a minister presiding over um, some vows that are going to be exchanged. But what we're going to see today is that this ceremony does not end in the same happy way that, that many weddings end in books and movies and, and the things that we've all seen, the stories that we've heard. This wedding ends awkwardly. Uh, in, in kind of a strange way. Um, and it leaves us with a tension. And it reveals a problem, a problem that Israel had and also a problem that you and I live in the midst of today. So that's where we're going. That's what we're going to look at. We're in Joshua chapter 24, um, which is on page 231 of your church Bibles. Those are just under the chairs there if you want to turn there. Um, I'm going to pray and then, and then we'll get going. Well, Lord Jesus, um, we thank you uh, just for this sweet, sweet morning together um, that we can um, gather in worship to continue the celebration of uh, not only your birth, but, but your whole life and death and everything um, that you did uh, during your time on earth um, in order to bring us to you. Lord, we love you. We're thankful for uh, this time to look at your word together. Um, Lord, I'm very aware that, that talking does not change people's hearts, but that your word does, and that you use it. Um, and so I pray that you would today. I pray that our hearts would be open. Holy Spirit, would you come uh, just make these words alive to us? Uh, speak to our hearts. Uh, show us uh, what we're truly worshiping. 
Um, and Lord Jesus, would, would you uh, just become more and more beautiful in our hearts through this time this morning? We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so Joshua chapter 24, last one, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> it says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and he summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So let's set the stage here. Joshua and all the people come together for this ceremony at Shechem. Now Shechem, if you'll remember, um, is a place of very... uh, historical and cultural significance for the Israelites. It is this place where in chapter 8 of Joshua, um, Joshua built this altar, this big altar, and it was between these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, Mount, the Mount of Blessing and the Mount of Cursing. And Joshua read the book of the law, the law that God had given through Moses, and he read these blessings and curses for those who would keep or not keep the law of God, the covenant of God. And so Shechem is also significant because it's there that when Abraham came into the land, when God brought him there, it was there that he first built an altar to the Lord as well. And it's also the place where God first made a covenant with Abraham, the first time he made a commitment to Abraham, who was the father of the nation of Israel. And so this place, Shechem, is really holy ground. Um, It's a place of deep significance for the Israelites Um, and of deep national significance. For us, it might be kind of like the place where the Declaration of Independence was signed, or um, maybe something of more historical importance like Lane Stadium. Um, Very, very significant place. Um, So, everyone is there. All the people and leaders come together, and the ceremony begins. Now, let me tell a brief story. I've got two daughters, Their names are Eleanor and Annie. Uh, They're five and two. They're precious. You've probably seen them running around the stage like they shouldn't be at the end of service or in the parking lot, uh, because that happens sometimes too. Um, (laughs) But Eleanor's five. She's the oldest, and she loves weddings. Um, In fact, she loves to get married is what she really likes. Um, So oftentimes, uh, after a long day of slaving away under Scott's gentle and tender and kind leadership here in the office, I, um, I make my way home, and uh, I walk in the front door, and there's Eleanor. Um, and she's in a white dress, and her hair's all done up just right. She's got these little pink uh, plastic princess heels that she likes to wear, and, uh, you know, she's just grinning, just her little eyes shining. It's very sweet. Um, but we do this often. And so I, I know what I'm supposed to do, and so I quickly take my position in the kitchen. And um, Annie is, is relegated to being the flower girl, uh, which Eleanor is very kind to let her do that. And so Annie, you know, walks down, Eleanor walks down, we're holding hands. Um, but then, as with all good weddings, Eleanor says, Daddy, there's got to be somebody to tell the story. And so Mommy, being the only person left in the house, Uh, usually gets to be the one who tells the story, the one who presides over the ceremony. And so Kayla shares the long uh, history of Eleanor and I's deep love for each other. 
And uh, we exchange some vows, share a little kiss, and then we quickly move on to the dance party, which is, which is the main part of a wedding ceremony. Um, and that usually features uh, the song September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. Um, that's, that's Eleanor's favorite. So it's a good time. Well, similarly to all good weddings, God is the one who starts off this ceremony by telling the story. God himself, through Joshua, uh, tells the story of his love for his people Israel. And so the first 13 verses of this passage, I'm not going to read them, but, but just summarize them. God is telling the story. He says, long ago, I brought your fathers out of this, this land far away where they were serving other gods, and I brought them to this land. And even though your people were enslaved in Egypt for a while, I brought them out. I pulled you out of slavery. I brought you through the wilderness. I brought you to myself. And now I've brought you into this good land, and I've driven out your enemies, and and this is the place that I have prepared for us. So God tells the story of his love for his people. And then we come to verse 14. And here the the voice switches back to Joshua's own, um, and Pastor Joshua turns and addresses the people of Israel, and he says this, Chapter 24, verse 14. He says, Therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness, completely and consistently. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So now the story has been told, and it's time for the vows. And Joshua is inviting the people of Israel to commit. He's inviting them to commit. He's saying, it's up to you. You can choose. Who will you serve? What God will you be committed to? The Lord has proved his love to you. He has wooed you. He's called you to himself. This has been a beautiful relationship so far, but now it is time to settle down. It is time to commit. And notice that Joshua knows where he stands. He says, me and my house, we're serving the Lord. We're committing, but I can't do it for you. As your leader, I can't commit to serving the Lord for you. You must choose whom will you serve. And so, friends, today, the same choice is offered to each of us. In fact, every day, we have the decision to decide who will we serve. And that's not really a question that we like, is it? As our modern, individualistic, American sort of selves, we don't like to think that we have to serve anyone, that, um, you know, that we're, we're free to do what we want and do what we will. But the reality is that we are all obligated to serve in some way, aren't we? The reality is that we are all servants of something. Let's think about this together. Most of us, I imagine, don't live off our own land. Um, Instead, we earn a living by serving an organization or a company or an individual. A lot of us have debts that we're bound to serve until those things are paid off. Um, And almost all of us have family members that we have some obligation to care for or to serve And so none of us can escape these obligations that we have to to be in service to something or someone. But our obligation to service goes even deeper than that. 
even deeper than those things. You see, this word serve, um, it comes up 16 different times in this chapter. It's kind of the key word of the chapter. Um, But what's interesting is I'm reading the ESV. It translates it as serve. Some of you guys have the NIV, and it translates the word as worship. And so although we use those words in in some different ways, and they don't always mean the same thing in our vocabulary, um, here in this passage and in the Bible, those words are very, very close in their significance. They're tied together. Um, And they're really two sides of the same coin. To serve something is to worship something. To worship is to serve. And that's because the things that we do, the ways that we serve, the things that we do with our lives are fueled and motivated by the things that we love. The things that we do are fueled and motivated by the things that we love. And so you and I, whether we admit it or not, we will all serve something. Our lives will be given in service to some greater cause or person or thing. We were made to be worshipers. We can't escape that. Your life will be lived in worship to some kind of God. You will serve something or someone. And here is the story. Um, here, here is what the story of Joshua and Israel makes very clear. Um, everything that we've seen so far in, in this book, that you are made to find life through worshiping the one true God. And that worshiping any other God will only end in death. Worshiping any other God will only end in death. Giving your life to the service or worship of anything or anyone other than Yahweh, the God that's revealed here in Scripture, will end in sorrow and heartbreak and ultimately in destruction. In destruction. So maybe you've experienced this. Um, When something or someone becomes... The, the thing around which your life revolves, the object of your worship. Um, when you begin to live for money, it begins to slip through your fingers, and enough is never enough. When you begin to live for sexual pleasure, things begin to get darker and darker, and you start to do things that hurt you and hurt other people, and you will never be satisfied. When your life begins to be obsessed around another person, whether it's your spouse or your kids or your girlfriend or your boyfriend, when they become the center of who you are, that relationship begins to crumble and it begins to break apart because no person can be the object of your worship. No person can bear the weight of all of your emotions and your desires and your longings and your hopes and your fears. No one can do that. Only God can. And when we begin to make ourselves the ultimate goal of our lives, we quickly begin to realize how empty and insufficient and lacking we are. You and I are terrible objects of worship, as are all the other things that I mentioned. But it's because we were made to find life in worshiping the one true God. And worshiping any other God will only end in death. So, The choice seems pretty obvious, right? Choose God. Why in the world would you choose any other God to worship? So, everybody with me? Cool, let's choose God. Great. So, that's exactly how the people of Israel respond to Joshua's invitation uh, in verses 16 and 18. They say, absolutely, 
God is the one we will worship. We want to commit to him. Let's make the vows, put a ring on it, cue the earth, wind, and fire. Let's go. But then something very unexpected happens. Something awkward. And something that, frankly, is, is just, yeah, it's, it's a strange thing. But this is what Joshua says at verse 19. He says, you are not able. You're not able. You are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and you serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. What? That's crazy. I mean, Joshua just said, make a commitment, make the choice, and now he's telling them that they can't? Can you imagine what it must have felt like to be the Israelites right there? Can you imagine what that would feel like if this happened at an actual wedding today? The groom is standing there stupidly grinning at the altar. The bride comes in. The groom's, you know, misty-eyed, jerking a tear. She comes down the aisle. They're together. Um, They're making their commitments, their vows to one another. It's emotional. People are crying. And then the minister says, well, uh, that was nice, but... uh, it's not going to work out. I just want to let you know, uh, you guys are 100% not going to stay together. And uh, yeah, that's really sad, but I just, you know, she's going to cheat and he's going to run around and it's just not going to work out, so you can't do it. I just thought I'd let you know. That's awkward. (laughs) That's uncomfortable. (laughs) And I imagine that that is a little bit of what the Israelites at this moment were, were feeling. They're like, hey, you literally just told us to commit, and we said yes, and Joshua, you are ruining this moment. This is a big moment, and you are ruining it. If you were those people, then how would you respond? If you were that bride at the altar, then how would you respond? Well, probably just like the people of Israel did. In verse 21, it says, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. (laughs) Of course we're going to do this. And then in verse 22, Joshua says, okay, well, um, you guys are witnesses against yourselves. You're going to be witnesses against yourselves. I wash my hands. You're, you're not, I'm not accountable for you anymore. You're a witness against yourself that you're saying you're going to serve the Lord. And then he finishes the covenant ceremony and he sets up a stone. Um, if you'll notice, that, that's kind of been a trend in Joshua. This is the seventh stone or group of stones that have been set up as we've been going through this book. And Joshua sets up this this stone memorial, and he says, also, this stone is going to be a witness against you if you cheat on God. And then that's it. It says they all go home. The story's over. I imagine they did not cue the earth, wind, and fire at that moment. And so the end of the book of Joshua leaves us with a problem. It leaves us with a a tension that has to be resolved for God's people, and a tension that has to be resolved for you and me, because you and I live in the midst of it as well. The only way to the life that you were made for is through worshiping the one true God, and you can't do it. You can't do it. You are not able. You can't be faithful to him. You can't meet all his requirements. Maybe you've tried, but it's impossible. It's impossible. And maybe you're like me and you've tried 
and tried to manage your vices on your own and to do good and to do the right thing, and yet you fail over and over. And it seems like the more that we try to stay faithful to God, the more frustrated we get, the more those other gods start to look pretty good because it seems like they require a lot less, and the more our hearts begin to wander from the one that we were made for. And so we find ourselves failing in one of two ways. Either we don't serve God and we reject his requirements on our lives because um, we just, we think it's too much. We think he's not worthy of it. We don't like him. For however many reasons, we reject God and we, we run to the gods of the world, to sex and money and power and fame and comfort. Or, on the other side of the coin, we um, try really hard to serve God. We recognize his requirements, and we try really, really hard to be faithful and to do the right thing and to serve him on our own. And then we fail, and we try harder, and then we fail, and then we try harder. And so we end up either being lawless on the one hand or legalistic on the other hand. We ignore God's requirements or we obsess over them. But neither one leads us to the life that God has for us. Neither one will lead us to the life God has made us for. So, is there any hope? Is there any hope for Israel? Is there any hope for you and me? What is this tension at the book of Joshua pointing to? I believe it's summed up in one word, Jesus. Over and over again throughout the rest of the history of Israel, they prove to be unfaithful to the one true God. They run after other gods. They run after the gods of the nations around them and the ones who are mixed in with them. And they keep turning their back. And then the Lord mercifully draws them back to himself and then they turn their backs again and the cycle continues. They keep ignoring God's love and his path to the good life and eventually it gets them exiled, kicked out of the good land that God had so generously given them, that God had prepared for them to live with him. But even in exile, even in exile, we get a glimpse of the answer. A hundred years after the prophet Isaiah that we heard from a couple nights ago, and still 600 years before Jesus would come, God says this through the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. In the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Do you see it? Do you see the solution? Israel and you and I need a better covenant. We need a better covenant. We can't keep our commitments to God on our own. We will fail time and time again, no matter how hard we try. And so we need outside help. And in fact, that outside help that we need, the only one that will work is God himself. God himself. And that is exactly where Jesus comes in. 
in the person of Jesus, God stepped down into humanity to be the perfect covenant keeper. He came as a human to fulfill our end of the deal. He did what Israel and you and I could never do. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. And as a man, he was the only human ever able to fulfill all of God's requirements. And now through his death and his resurrection and his ascension, he offers you life. He offers you nothing less than himself. He offers himself as the way to keep God's covenant. He offers you a new heart and a new life in his very own spirit living inside of you, working the life of Christ out through yours because he's done it. He's fulfilled the covenant and he's done it for you. You don't have to do it alone. In fact, you cannot do it alone. God offers himself as the fulfillment of the covenant that you could never keep. That's good news, y'all. That's really good news. And so the really crazy, beautiful thing is this, that the God that you were made to serve, he himself has stepped down into our humanity to serve us. That's what we're celebrating here at Christmas. That the God that you were made to serve stepped into our humanity to serve us, to serve you. And Jesus says it, says exactly that in Mark 10, 45. He says, for even the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to love you. He came to serve you. He came to make you everything that you could never be on your own. He came to hold up your end of the bargain and to be the faithful covenant keeper on your behalf. He came to help you do all that he asks you to do. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't ask you to do any of it on your own. And so the question today then is, how do you respond to Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? Who do you worship? Is he the one that you're worshiping? Who have you given your heart and your life to? Because none of those other gods will satisfy. And so if you're here today and you don't follow Jesus, then I just want to tell you that nothing else is, is going to work. Nothing else is going to satisfy the longings of your soul. Nothing else is going to help you fulfill the requirements that God has of you. Nothing else is going to give you the life that God made you for. Nothing else will satisfy. And all of the thousand other things that you could build your life on will fail you. None of them are what you were made for. And none of them is a God so kind that they would stoop to serve you the way that Jesus did. And so the invitation then is to surrender to him and really to let him serve you, to let him love you, to let him fix all of the brokenness in your life that you've been trying to fix on your own. Let Jesus serve you. And if you're here today and you do follow Jesus, then the question for you is just, how is your heart? How is your heart toward him? Is it warm? 
Are you rejoicing in all that God is for you in Jesus Christ and all that he's done and all that he's still doing? Or is it cold toward him? Are you stuck in chasing after what the world says is going to work? Are you stuck in just trying to do it on your own, trying to live the Christian life on your own? What a, what a terrible thing to try to be like Jesus without Jesus' help. That's a joke. And that's not what he asked you to do. He came to help you do everything that he requires of you. And so does he have your heart? Does he have your heart? And for both Jesus' followers and for those who are not, here's what I'd like to ask us to do today as we wrap up here. As the new year approaches, um, I would like for us to take a worship inventory. Um, Don't worry, that's a lot more low-key than it sounds. It's just two questions. Um, I'd like us to do a little introspection and to see what it is that we're worshiping. Because it might be different than you think. Um, Remember, the things that we do, the things that we do with our lives are fueled and motivated by the things that we love. And so to look at our lives and see how we spend them and how we use the resources that God has given us, that is a really good indicator of where our heart is, of what we're loving, of what we're worshiping. So, Two questions, um, some indicators of what we, what we might be worshiping. First one is this, how do you spend your time, your treasures, and your talents? How do you spend your time, treasures, and talents? Where are you spending your time? It's a limited resource that you have. We've all got the same amount. Where are you giving your time? Who is that time given in service to? <clears throat> What about your treasures? Again, another limited resource that we only have so much of. You have a choice. Whom will you serve? Where will you spend it? What is your money spent on? And how does that reveal where your heart is and what you're worshiping? And then finally, your talents. You've been given gifts. You have abilities. You bring something to the world that no one else does. Are you using that for yourself? Are you using that enslaved to the gods of this world? Are you using that in freedom to glorify God and to enjoy Him? How do you spend your time, treasures, and talents? And then number two, what has your attention, your affection, and your anticipation? I know you guys appreciate these alliterations. A little little Baptist left in me. Um, What what has your attention? What What do you think about? What do you daydream about? What do you spend your hours pondering over in your mind? What are your thoughts consumed with? That might be a good idea of what you worship. What about your affection? What tugs at your heart? What do you care about most? What do you tear up over? What are you longing for? What has your heart? And then finally, your anticipation, what you're looking forward to. What gets you excited? When you look to the future, what do you hope is there? What are you looking forward to? What are you longing for? And then in thinking about those two questions, if you're looking at your life and you're realizing that you're not really worshiping the God that you want to be or the God that you say you are, then the good news is that all you have to do is confess it, to turn around and to run to the arms of Jesus, and he will change you from the inside out. You can't change your own heart. You can't change your affections, but he can. 
He can. He can open up your eyes to see how beautiful and good and wonderful He is. And He will if you just ask Him. Remember, He came to serve you. He came to serve you. He came not to be served, but to serve you, to love you, to heal you, to restore you. And so really the invitation today is to humble yourself, to let Jesus love you, to fall back in his arms of grace, to give up the gods of this world and give up trying to meet his requirements on your own, but to let him be all that he's promised to be for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there is no one like you. There is no God so good and kind as you who would come to serve the very people that you created. Lord, we rejoice in your advent with us. We rejoice that you have become as one of us. And here in your time on earth, you said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Lord Jesus, forgive us for trying to do it on our own. I pray for every heart here, Lord, that we would all, um, yeah, just see the, the gods of this world as the illusion that they are, see through their empty promises. And I pray that we would see through that ultimate illusion of thinking that we can please you on our own, that we can do it. Lord, help us to give up this Christmas to rest in you, to trust in you, and to let you be all that you have offered to us. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you. We give you praise today. We pray that you'd meet us in this time of communion. We pray this in your name. Amen.